Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. On all of this, and on women in business, it is important to talk to somebody who not only slid through pure mathematics, but then to inflict more uh, pain on her adolescent and student life. She took a master's in statistics. Ann Carnes is more qualified than anyone in the United Kingdom, with the possible exception of Ann Richards over at Fidelity, to talk about what it's going to take to straighten this true gender disaster out. And we are honored to have you uh, with us today, the vice chair of MasterCard. And I, I've got about 47 questions on digital banking, the future of cards, et cetera. But let's go to women in education right now. You lived STEM. How do we get more people into STEM? And do we just have to wait it out over a timeline to get there? Well, thanks, Tom, for that lovely introduction. And I don't think that we have to wait it out. I think we have to be really proactive. One of the things that we're doing at MasterCard is that we're bringing girls together, um, age 12 to 14, to bring them into the company and show them how great STEM careers are so that we get them before they start dropping maths and before they start selecting their exam subjects. And we've done that with over 4,000 girls around the world now. And we've got a million that we're aiming for. This is so important to get them into a STEM environment that is less than threatening. What do the people at home have to do? And we call these parents. What a par I mean, I get all the cheerleading in the elite schools. Everybody in America is getting 900s on their SATs. But what do we do in every single home to get parents to understand girls can take pure mathematics and statistics? Well, I'm actually a parent myself, Tom, and, uh, and so I know what you're talking about here. First of all, I think parents have to be supportive of their kids, whatever their kids want to do. Actually, my daughter went to university and did a, an arts degree, but funnily enough, after doing that, she went to business school, and now she works for a digital bank. And I think the point about this is that you can choose to go into a tech kind of environment at any point in your life and it's really telling your kids that there's a variety of roles out there and to follow their hearts on it and to actually expose themselves to as many subjects as possible. And overall, has the environment for women and girls really changed in the last 10 years? We see headlines that it's changing, but if you dig a little bit deeper, is it true or is it just headlines? No, I think that the environment has changed. I think that girls are getting a lot of encouragement now about um, these subjects. And I know if you do something like international baccalaureate, you tend to take six subjects right up until you go to university. And that's where you can really mix the science and the arts. Here in Britain, that was never possible in my generation. I had to do maths, physics and chemistry, or I had to do English, history and geography, yeah. but I couldn't mix the two. 
Yeah, but what, at what point do women drop off the ladder, right? Is it because companies don't pay them enough, or is it right at the start at the education level? Right. I think that more women need to go into STEM at the education level, but I think if you're talking about the corporate world, we know that there's a bit of a dip that starts to occur roundabout in the 30s and early 40s. And some of that is actually related to people having kids and making choices. But it's, it's also, you know, people, not everyone has children. Okay. So I think we have to look at that and say what is actually happening at that level. Okay, you've touched the third rail in America, of course, is way, way behind on, you know, our attitudes about, you know, the first baby, the second baby. By the third baby, and nobody cares. You don't know the kid's name. I mean, we all know that. But, but, but seriously, Anne, I, I mean, there's got to be a corporate and societal change on what to do with a grown adult, multi-degreed woman, or frankly, a blue-collar laborer who's worked up to 16 or 22 $25 an hour when they're 28 or they're 33. What's the legislation you would suggest is the best outcome? Well... Um, I think that, you know, if you read anything like A Hundred Year Life, which is written by Linda Gratton from London Business School, she starts talking about we have to train and constantly right. retrain because we're going to live a long period of time now and we shouldn't be thinking of one career path. I think as far as uh, both men and women are concerned, mid-career changes are actually to right. be encouraged. At, in my 30s, I changed from being an engineer to being a banker. My Actually, I wouldn't sympathy. recommend it the other My way God. around. <laughs> That's a surveillance break uh, exclusive. Once Carnes was honorable. Okay. We've got to keep this going. This conversation is too important, folks, because we're all living this. And i got a really serious question. How would you explain pi to a sixth grade math student. I'm sitting with my daughter last night trying to figure out how to explain 3.14128, whatever the number is. How do you explain, you know, irrational numbers to a sixth grader? Well, that's a really tough question for me because I can't remember not knowing what pi was. Exactly. But, you know, I, I think actually the, probably the easiest thing is to explain it in the context of a circle because actually a pi looks like a circle to me. But, but the point being that, that whether you understand numbers that way or you don't, in today's world, it's much more about understanding, you know, why, um, you know, how do things work on the internet? Why do we need to protect data? Uh, what does artificial intelligence do? Right. Yeah. What does that mean to me in terms of helping me with my career? Um, what do I need to know to be in that field? And by the way, I think it's great because with the advent of artificial intelligence, you can have so much more creativity. I was, go I was going to ask you, actually, if, if you, you know, to, to a child born today, what should they study to, to actually get into the jobs of tomorrow? Well, I think, as I said, you have to keep yourself extremely broad. I mean, you have to be creative. If you have to be able to read and understand a lot of things that are happening in the world. Um, I mean, your profession is sort of at the, the forefront of that. And I'm sure that you will be getting more and more artificial intelligence tools in journalism. But at the same time, it will be freeing up 
you brilliant journalists to think and ask the right questions and maybe sort of wait, train wait. the minds of the computers of tomorrow. Tom's <laughs> blushing. Uh, I, wait a minute. I, I'm like, is the headline there, journalists are dumb? Is that what she just said, Francine? I'm, I'm not sure what to take. Uh, apart from the that. really good ones. Let me go. I, this is important. I'm going to go to Julian Emanuel, who has like eight children. I don't know what it is. Uh, is well, what do you think of this conversation? I mean, you and I are battling on this every day about a broader education for our kids like maybe we had or our parents certainly had and yet with the fundamental stem foundation that's that's the arch battle it is and and we would argue very vehemently that the more important stem becomes in terms of training for the 21st century the more important reading writing and a sense of historical perspective becomes because right. you can't integrate it and okay. communicate and i said this folks in speeches this is really really important i love to say when i'm wrong and i was way 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 wrong and carnes i have added to stem foreign languages to me learning two or three stop that learning two or three foreign languages is just as important for the organization of the brain as anything we would do with trigonometry am i right well, I think it's a very important skill, and actually I wish that I'd done more languages myself. I actually specialized in Latin, but your point being that training the brain in a certain way is, is really important, and being able to open your brain to some of the classics fantastically important. Uh, I think one of the things that's important in later life though, for example, I didn't stud hi study history, but I can read history books. I, you know, I read historical novels quite a lot as well. But if you don't study a certain le level of right. mathematics, it's virtually impossible to read some of well. the more um, books that are out there. Except, by the way, I think that Stephen Hawkins has made you know, the whole idea of uh, relativity and right. black holes and everything accessible to everyone. Yeah. Uh, I love his, uh, his, his latest book asking lots of important questions. Does God exist? Right. Um, you know, what does the future hold? Very interesting. Yeah, that's our next segment, Tom. It is. Ann Carnes, thank you so much. I know 2 pi r in pi r is a squared or cubed. Squared. Squared. Julian says it's squared. Ann Carnes, Almost. thank you so much for the quiz in math. She is the vice chair of MasterCard. Let's bring in Julian Emanuel, shall we? BTIG, Chief Equity and Derivative Strategist. Julian, it's great to have you with us on the program. I can't help but think we're obsessed with the shark closest to the boat, in this case trade, and missing the storms gathering overhead, which is the softer economic data. And the price action of the last 24 hours captured that almost perfectly. What's your view on it? Well, the canary in the coal mine is German 10-year yields. It is distressing to see... Uh, once again, you're at multi-year lows there. Um, it, it tells you that, you know, regardless of the strength of first quarter GDP in the U.S., which a, a lot was an inventory build, um, and the potential for China to reflate, that the growth story is anything but intact. We think it's going to uh, end up causing more monetary ease. Not seeing much disappointment from the world's biggest retailer, Walmart, just coming out with some numbers saying comp, comp sales are in line with estimates. Adjusted EPS beats a little bit. As you might expect, the CFO saying increased tariffs lead to increased prices. But nothing in there that screams 
America is falling apart. This economy seems okay. So why is the Treasury market primed for a rate cut? Well, uh, certainly part of it is is the spread issue. There's, it really is uh, only so far that U.S. yields can deviate from European yields, and we've been stretching that rubber band for quite some time. Uh, but the fact is, again, uh, part of the Fed's mission is, A, to prop up inflation expectations, but more importantly, to ensure that the kind of potential for uh, slower economic growth doesn't get imported the way uh, stock market weakness got imported at the end of last year, the way bond market strength has been imported. So you and the team over at BTIG are looking for a rate cut. In fact, you're looking for two rate cuts this year. The market isn't completely out of whack with you. In fact, I would say the market has a little bit more optimism. Not only is the market looking for a rate cut, the global market is looking for the Fed to land a soft landing looking for the Federal Reserve to nail it. There's always this question I hear over the last couple of weeks, in fact, for most of 2019, what does the bond market know that equity markets don't, as if the bond investors have some kind of secret? For me, the global market has been trading on the idea that we will get easing of monetary policy, that we will get a rate cut, and the equity market seems to have this belief that we will land a soft landing. Do you think that's possible? It is possible, but again, everything needs to fall in place. Uh, you know, clearly, the last week has taught us that the dialogue between China and the U.S. is likely to be more challenging than investors believed initially. Uh, and obviously, Brexit once again is coming to the fore. So these types of things, yeah. along with the Fed that's going to be accommodative, they all need to go right for a soft landing. We're going to do a value add for you this morning. I usually don't do this, John. Walmart, I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. It's the pulse of America. I get it. <laughs> but the headlines are really misleading, and it's trading fractionally lower now after the initial pop. I looked at the summary of some of the margin ratios buried within Walmart, and I'm not sure it's all that pretty. And Julian Emanuel, this goes to a conversation John and I had yesterday on margins with David Costin of Goldman Sachs. After all the, it's like, it's like folks, rates are going higher. How many times have you heard it, John? 47 times? Rates are going higher. I've heard since time began, margins will be compressed. And corporations have managed so margins wouldn't be compressed. To the Goldman Sachs theory, are we finally at the point where margins will be compressed? Uh, very possibly. And the, the escalation of this trade war is certainly going to be a culprit. Because from our point of view, look, let, let's be honest. The, the calculation that we think part of the market is missing right now is that a trade war is not inflationary. The math may drive that conclusion, but the simple fact is, is when you look at it, we don't think that price yeah. increases are going to be passed on, and that will cut into margins eventually and economic activity. Really important point, John. I would know Walmart bouncing around up a dollar, down a dollar, so it's really indeterminate right now. Year-end price target, 3000 <clears throat> On for Walmart? Rent? No. Oh, sorry. <laughs> for Julian. Come on, Tom. Keep up. Julian, year-end price target 3000 on the S&P 500. So looking for a rate cut. And essentially, you're looking for that soft landing, too. That's what your forecast ultimately implies. Uh, and continued economic growth. Um, you know, it, it's really... Uh, it's sort of a concept where uh, 
fortunately, the Fed realizes that the rest of the world is important in this calculus as well. And the Fed, in our view of increasing accommodation, is really trying to stop dollar strength, trying to allow the rest of the world's central banks to be as accommodative as they need to be uh, in this lower growth world. I want to go derivatives on you. What do the Greek letters say right now? When you look at, you know, the cross moments and all the other mumbo jumbo, they have incense. John, did you notice that the other day the wind shifted here? The incense out of quantitative research, Lukawa and all those guys, they burn incense over there to get the Greek letters going. What do they tell you right now about left tail risk? Um, it's actually underpriced at this point. What is, uh, excuse me. Things are underpriced at Walmart. What does underpriced mean? Well, the, the VIX uh, basically back to 15, 16 um, after having been in the 20s a week and a half ago, in our view. All rep- clear melt up. We just don't see it that way. There's too much political risk uh, in the near term. And in fact, uh, what we're uh, telling clients to do right now is if they believe that there's going to be this period of churn with perhaps a downward bias, you may want to sell some upside calls against your stock holdings to cushion the downside. Just in terms of the hunger for downside protection, we had a little bit of demand for puts relative to calls going into the sell-off. Have you seen enough fear in the put-call ratio to say now's the time to get in with some conviction? Do you see enough of that? No, we don't. And, and in fact, because if you think about it, we essentially rallied since the end of December in a straight line for four months. So if you were a protection buyer, you got crushed yeah. continuously. And so the reaction over the last several weeks is if you bought protection, if you had it or you bought it, the minute you thought you had profits, you locked them in. So here we are sort of back to square one. And again, from our point of view, uh, the VIX at this number, we, we'd like to see actually uh, as this thing unfolds, if political risk remains elevated, a VIX closer to 30. Yeah. That would give us more confidence that we get hey, to a good buy spot. You work with Rich Greenfield. He's such a hitter. Does he have the final episode of Game of Thrones? I mean, he's so large. Does he? Does Rich get like an advanced copy? It, it, he not only does he get advanced copy, he may have a cameo. He may. Oh no! You know who's in there? The quarterback, Michael Barr. They showed me the making of the last episode. Aaron Young. Aaron Young. Green Bay Packers. Aaron, Aaron Rodgers. Rogers. Aaron Rodgers was in as an extra <laughs> in the it. last episode. When, when Tom pretends he knows something about sports. <laughs> hey, hey, what <laughs> state? <laughs> hey, excuse me. Who's Aaron excuse Young? Me. What state is Green Bay in? I won't even pretend I know. But I'm not pretending I know about football I don't either. know. What do I know? Anyways, but I do Aaron know where Young. Wisconsin no, Aaron is. Rogers. <laughs> he was an extra in the, in the last episode of Game of Thrones. Several seasons ago, Noah Syndergaard was also in Game of Thor, Thrones. Thor, I saw him, but he yeah. looked like the part. Aaron yeah. was just like, you know, selling pots or something on the streets of <laughs> King's Landing. Anyways, Julian Robertson, thank you so much. Tell Rich Greenfield I could use a CD so I can get out front on That's Aaron Young doing. Julian, Julian Emanuel. Aaron Young, Aaron Young is with Julian Robertson right now. Right now, Joseph Feldman, Telsey Advisory Group, on Walmart. And Joe, the only number that matters in your report that I can barely read because the font is too small. Memo on that, Joe. 11 million of e-commerce sales and then 16 gazillion, excuse me, let me start over, 11 billion 
and then 16 billion and then 27 billion. From this earnings report, what did you learn about the vector of e-commerce sales at Walmart? Well, it's still nicely increasing. I mean, you're up to it was up 37% uh, this quarter and they're continuing to contribute nicely to same store sales. Uh, people are, are, are buying at Walmart. They're shopping in the stores. They're shopping online. I mean, how about that 3.4% comp that they did uh, in total? And yeah. uh, like you said, a good chunk was online helping it. Best, is, best for the period, Tom, in nine years. Yeah, absolutely. Shouldn't gloss is, over it. Really decent. Is their online the same as Amazon online? Is their product mix different? Uh it, it, largely, it's the same. I mean, it's really a lot of the same type of items. I mean, they both have tremendous uh, volume of items that are available. Walmart is being very aggressive in terms of its delivery methods and yeah. trying to get more, uh, you know, speed to market, did speed of delivery, next day delivery. So they're trying to match pace with what Amazon's trying to do. Um, you know, they're yeah. selling a lot of home and, and other accessories online. So doing a good job. They're fighting for delivery, and Amazon is fighting back. We're trying to get it down to really, really tight time frames in a really short period of time. Who wins that battle, Joe? Who has the best logistics? Well, you know, they both have very strong logistics networks. Um, the, the one nice thing about Walmart is they've got all those stores. You know, they've got 4,700 stores that they can ship from and, and use as pickup points. Now, Amazon has partnered with lots of uh, people and has lockers in lots of places, and so they've done the same kind of thing to try to have a lot of pickup points. But um, the store pickup, I, uh, we believe, is, is an advantage that uh, Walmart does have, and they're trying to exploit that. Joe, got to talk to you about the prospect of tariffs. Seems to come down to a question of what is your poison, what is their poison, higher prices or smaller margins? What do they go with? Well, you know, what's interesting is on a relative basis, Walmart is less exposed than a lot of other retailers. Interesting. Considering how much food that they sell, and uh, it's, it's domestic. Plus, they've got, you know, almost 30% of their sales come from international sales. So now you've narrowed it down. But, yes, uh, we think it's going to be a bit of a mix. Uh, broadly speaking, for retail, we do see higher prices weighing on the consumer, uh, especially if we, you know, with the, this new 25% tariff yeah. rate and if we expand to more. Joe, two questions. You've got a fabulous Excel spreadsheet of Amazons. And, folks, this is a, a ratio that's sort of pro-jargon. Total enterprise value to EBITDA of Amazon, hugely lofty, hugely digital. In Walmart, uh, sort of big box, boring retail. Do you just assume at some point they have to spin off their digital effort, their Amazon effort, to get an Amazon-like ratio? You know, it's interesting you say that because we, we've been arguing that Walmart should warrant this higher valuation. A lot of investors will push back on us and say, boy, it's really expensive to buy Walmart. But in comparison to Amazon and given all they're doing on the digital side and the growth of the business, we think it's warranted. I don't know that they'll have to spin it off at some point, but yeah. I do think that you need more guys like me telling the world that it's, uh, you have to value that at a little bit higher rate. Walmart, John Farrow, 21 times uh, P.E. out a year, which is, you know, in the old days of retail, that would have been 12 or 15 times. Joe Feldman, thank you for the immediate analysis. Chelsea Advisory Group on Walmart. I want to get right to it. There's so much to talk about and hear it. 
uh, really the Wall Street briefing of the day on the combined system of economics and market and central bank dynamics. John Farrell, why don't you bring in our esteemed guest from UBS? Oh, thank you. How kind of you. That's really nice of you. Are we sharing guests this morning? We are sharing guests. Thank you. Paul Donovan joining us now, UBS Global Chief Economist. Good morning to you, Paul. Good morning. The Federal Reserve, will it deliver what the market is priced for? Because the market increasingly is looking for a soft landing and some Federal Reserve rate cuts, Paul. What do you make of that? Yeah, I I think the the market needs to take a deep breath and come back to the real world. Um, The U.S. economy at the moment has got trend, in fact, slightly above trend growth. You've got an extraordinarily low unemployment rate. You've got rising wages some signs of wage acceleration, and you've got normal inflation. On what possible planet do you cut rates in that environment? It would be absurd. Now, of course, we also have uh, a ramping up of taxes by the U.S. government. The government is piling taxes onto the long-suffering shoulders of the U.S. taxpayer through trade taxes. Now, if that goes excessive and we get a very negative growth result from that, then, of course, the Fed should respond. But that's not what the market's saying. The market's saying if nothing changes, they should cut. No way. Well, within that, Paul, in that they should respond is the suppleness of central bankers. One of the things John Farrow and I have noticed is central bankers putting out statements that they're going to have stability and not do this or that for months and months and even quarters, a la Mr. Draghi. Do you pine for central bankers now who are more supple in their dynamics, in their thinking? Well, it used to make my life a bit more interesting if, you know, if central bankers' speeches actually said something rather than just sort of reiterated a, a pre-approved mantra. Um, I think in the current environment, the, the, the problem that we've got is that the, the disaster of 2008-2010 was so traumatic that central bankers yeah. feel that they've got to provide this constant reassurance, constantly hold yep. investors' hands, and that's why we get this. That's why we get it, but then what do we do about it? How do you link... Paul Donovan, UBS strategy with your equity or your bond or your tactical strategist as well. How do you take the Donovan big picture and affect it into the markets? Well, one of the things that that we've been seeing, which is actually truly remarkable, is this enormous stability in the global economy over the last eight years, at least until two weeks ago, uh, where we've, we've basically not budged from trend growth. In, in eight years. That's never happened before. Never. Now, what that means is, I think, that the relevance to markets of economics isn't so much in the headlines. It's more in the, in the subtle details. It's the nuances. Is this sector of the economy going to outperform or not? If we get trade taxes, that may not do that much damage directly to the economy in the first instance, but it might cause this part of the economy to underperform. Um, that kind of thing. That's where we're focused now. It's more on yeah, the relative well said. in economics. Well, Paul, beyond just that, we did have a break of trend in the United States, which is why some people think those tax cuts will end up being rather counterproductive and disruptive because we had a break of trend growth for about 12 months. Now we're returning to what looks like trend growth. Paul, can we return to trend growth in the United States without disruptions? I think you can. Uh, because I think the tax cuts um, that we had at the start of last year were seen as one-off. But, and and this is the key point, it depends what happens with the tax hikes. As you're putting on more and more taxes on trade, that obviously has a a drag on the economy in a direct sense, uh, clearly. But what's really the problem here is that the trade taxes are creating uncertainty. And that's been the main risk 
in the global economy. It's what's globalized this U.S.-China dispute as well. Because if you get uncertainty, companies delay investment. If they delay investment, that further hits trade and it hits manufacturing. And if you look at the poor performance in the economic numbers at the end of last year, it was entirely due to a CapEx slowdown. The consumer was perfectly fine. Yeah. But because of this uncertainty caused by trade taxes, we ended up with a slowdown. Paul, this is where there's some worry about China. They can increase the availability of credit. They can decrease the price of credit. Will there be demand for credit in a place like China if there is this extra layer of uncertainty around the trade story? Just how damaging is that? And to what degree is China just pushing on a string here? Well, part of the issue here is that it's not really China's investment that I care about. It's, it's global investment that we've seen the slowdown. Um, because companies are saying, well, you know, do I want to invest in the U.S. if I can't be sure about my supply chain? And the answer is, you know what, probably not. Let's wait and see what happens. Do I want to invest in the U.K. when the government can't decide what it's going to do next? No, I want to wait and see what happens. So with all of this, it's a global issue. China, I think, can provide stimulus to its domestic economy, but via infrastructure, which doesn't have the same global impact. I would say one of our themes, folks, this week, and this started with John Williams in conversation in Zurich of the New York Fed, and we're hearing it from Paul Donovan, uh, is this measurement of business confidence is being all important. What do you desire to see from Beijing or Washington? And I don't mean like grand thing, like, oops, we're wrong, let's walk away. But what is the act thing they can do right now to at least provide stability to a declining business confidence? So I think this is one of the, one of the interesting points, that it's, it's not necessarily about we are going to do a deal because, you know, we've been crying wolf too many times on this. Yeah. Um, what you actually want is some sense that you know how deals are going to be negotiated. The problem that we've had um, throughout this whole trade tax story is that the rules of the game have been torn up. And that's very, very unsettling. We've had trade disputes in the past. We've had trade disputes ever since the WTO was created. But we've always known what the procedure is and how the rules will be applied. The uncertainty that's coming through on both sides the fact that you know, every morning when I do my morning podcast, the first thing I'm doing is checking the, tw- uh, the Trump Twitter feed and the front page of the People's Daily to, to judge the tone. Yet that's not a very stable environment in which to be operating. Yeah. Well, you took a print subscription to the Global Times, right, Paul Donovan? <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting Basically. to read John. You know, I, I make a joke about it, but John, it's really interesting to read the English language newspaper of clearly the People's Party. Well, let's pick up there, and we'll put a bow on this conversation too. Paul, do you really? sense in the Chinese media that this nationalistic tone is starting to build a little bit more, using the words "trade war" a whole lot more? Do you see those kind of things building up a bit? I do, and this has been something that's been worrying us for some time. So. Uh, Last year, I I was having a discussion with um, our chief investment officer in China, and she and I were uh, not disagreeing, because I don't disagree with my colleagues, but we were not perhaps in 100% (laughs) agreement um, over what was driving this. And Hefan was saying to me, well, this is all about clash of civilizations and so on and so forth. And I was saying, well, it seems to be more mercantile from President Trump's possession. It's about surplus good, deficit bad. And I think this is one of the problems that the view from Asia is that this is very, very political and struggle for survival. And the view from the States has some of that in it, but it's also more about fair trade and and trade balances. So the two sides are actually talking about different problems, I think. Uh, And you get that sense from 
comparing the Chinese media right. with the Trump Twitter feed or the or the US media, perhaps. Paul Donovan, this has been wonderful. Thank you so Paul much. Paul always smart. UBS. Thank Just you. Really, really uh, good as well. One of the things we know about terrorists for certain is that it is always complex. And there's any number of ways to look at the dynamics of an import tax and its effect on society. Always needed are very important Y and X axis charts and associated bar charts. And then it gets a little thick to read. Gabriel Felbermeyer joins us. Uh, He is truly an expert on tariff dynamics We're going to try here right now to get beyond the simplicity of this discussion to a little bit of complexity. Uh, Dr. Felbermeyer, wonderful to have you with us uh, with the Kiel Institute of the World Economy. Let me give a simplistic question, and you can give me a Trumpian answer, the kind of answer you would give the president. Who wins and who loses from increased U.S. import tariffs? Well, uh that really depends uh, on the objective that you have in mind. As a liberal economist, I would say uh, a trade war, a tariff war, uh, cannot be won. And there will be losses on both sides. So the U.S.-Chinese trade war uh, lowers U.S. GDP to the extent that China retaliates, retaliates, which it does, and it also harms the Chinese economy. But if you are not in that type of liberal uh, economic thinking, but you, you think about the, the power relationship, then the fact that, Chinese, that China loses much more uh, than the U.S. does can make uh, a trade war a success, because then you can point out this escalation of tariffs, of import tariffs, has held China down. If that is your objective, then you could uh, claim victory. Gabriel, there's been a lot of research over the last year or so about who pays for the tariffs. By definition, the importer pays the tariff. Where the costs are borne is a more nuanced proposition. Gabriel, you've done some research on that. Walk me through your research and the methodology for it. So, you know, we have a long tradition in economics to uh, quantify who actually pays a tax. A tariff is just a tax. And the, the question of tax incidence depends a lot on the so-called elasticities of demand and supply. Uh, how flexible are suppliers? How flexible are consumers in the face uh, of a tariff? And there is a, a simple rule, I would say, sometimes, sometimes called the idiot's law of elasticities, uh, you know, even if we don't have deep research into their size, uh, we typically believe that uh, the burden of a tax is borne half by one market side and half by the other market side. If we apply that to the uh, China-U.S. Uh, trade conflict, we would say that the Chinese suppliers pay half of the economic cost and the other half of the economic cost is borne by those in the United States uh, who buy the products. Now, of course, if you drill down in the thousands and thousands of goods uh, that are at stake here. If you really look ex- exactly what elasticities of supply and demand uh, the profession has estimated over many years, then you can uh, become more accurate. We've done such an exercise together with Swiss colleagues, and what we find is that uh, the the first wave of the products that Trump has uh, has put tariffs on uh, was such that China bears most of the burden, something like three quarters of the cost, and even a bit more borne by China. 
that is not by random, but it's simply due to the fact that uh, when a country wants to inflict harm uh, on a trade partner, it doesn't choose products at random. It doesn't uh, 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 put tariffs on random products, but at those products where the so-called tax incidence is most favorable, where the elasticities tell you that uh, it will be, uh, in that case, the supply side that will uh, bear most of the cost. Now, our calculations are long-run calculations. If you look at how did the prices in the United, cha- United States change uh, you know, a week, two weeks, a month after the imposition of tariffs, you don't find much of the effect that we uh, think should be there. Because what, uh, what uh, our argument requires, of course, is some time to adjustment. How so, much Gabriel, time? let's talk about that because it's important. That, uh, you know, Gabriel, let's talk about that. The it's, it's, it's really important because David Weinstein, a trade economist yes. at Columbia, together with some co-authors, are essentially putting forward some research that has been very well read that other people are citing that say that the tariffs have been fully borne by the American side. Gabriel, are you saying we just need more time to see how this actually plays out? We know very well uh, that the so-called tariff pass-through takes time to occur. The same is true for uh, changes in exchange rates and other you know, price changes that affect the uh, import prices. These prices don't change uh, so fast, but they will change. And the, you know, a, full, a full pass-through to the Chinese, the Chinese or oh, sorry, a full pass-through to, to the uh, American consumers, that they pay 100% of the tariff would be highly unusual. It would contradict right. uh, okay. what we I'll know from our textbooks. But you, you, what does the x-axis look like? What is the timeline to get to where the responsiveness or elasticities begin yes. to say that China picks up the burden? Is it quarters or years? I would say we should see the effect now. So uh, my guess is that it's quarters rather than years, two quarters, three quarters. Uh, so we, would, we should see now okay. um, some response on the Chinese side. On, and what is also quite important, of course, is that you know, in our, all our theories, including right. uh, the, the Weinstein calculations, what people assume is that those tariffs are permanent. To the extent that you don't think that they are permanent, but they might okay, negotiate a way. Yeah. That would enter the pricing strategy. Of Absolutely. Of Tell us how foreign exchange overlays into this. So much of this research, folks, and what we're doing here is pretty highbrow uh, 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 dynamics and static analysis of this problem. Yes. But, Professor, it's an international problem. How do you adjust your elasticities or responsivenesses to a seven yuan or even weaker yuan? So the, the dynamics uh, of the exchange rates, of course, they, they belong to this entire game. Uh, and from a macroeconomic point of view, it is not actually clear where the macroeconomic adjustment takes place, whether it is really a lowering of export prices by Chinese firms or a depreciation of the yuan. At the end, it doesn't really matter. It means, so even if the yuan depreciates, this means uh, that part of the burden will be borne by, uh, by the Chinese as you know, one, uh, one yuan of exports uh, to, uh, to, the, to, to the United States will raise less foreign uh, exchange uh, than without the tariffs. That's just the manifestation of the fact that the, that the Chinese are, uh, are carrying some part of the burden. Gabriel, you make the point that in the beginning of any trade dispute, when you start to put tariffs on, you can be very targeted, very selected. You can pick goods that have certain price elasticities. You can pick goods that have substitutes from elsewhere. Once you put tariffs on everything, walk me through just theoretically where the costs are borne then, because then it changes, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. 
Uh, and that's why we think that an escalation of the tariff conflict with, uh, with China would increase the cost to the uh, U.S. economy more than proportionately, because those products where tariff incidence is most favorable for the United States are already gone. They are already subject to those tariffs. And as you prolong the list of products covered, you move into products where tax incidence is not favorable to the United States at all. Uh, and so, uh, you know, if the if the tariff war escalates, uh, the, the costs move from, from five, six right. billion uh, dollars of damage to the U.S. economy, it sounds like 30, quite faster, or much faster than, we, uh, that the, than, than the volume of imports covered by additional tariffs. What is your study of history that down the road somewhere in some time, a la literally 1948, we will move away from tariffs back towards what Mr. Kudlow wants, which is free trade? What, what, what is the path to get rid of tariffs on both sides? So if we, if we only knew, uh, so I think, I think uh, we have a lot of vested interests everywhere, uh, in Europe, in China, in the United States, uh, that uh, find tariffs very attractive. Uh, tariffs generate uh, uh, revenue. That's an important uh, source of income for the European Commission, for example, which doesn't have much own funds. Yeah. Uh, tariffs protect a certain economic interest, so it's very hard to get rid of them. Uh, and I yeah. think, you know, the hope that one can have is that the that uh, the escalation that we see uh, that uh, very much comes out of the White House these days uh, can, you know, spur a round of tariff liberalization in the medium to long run. Uh, because what what could be the outcome? Uh, no one really right, should be right. interested in having those economic uh, uh, damages. Uh, if China lowers tariffs, which it well, has already done in the automotive uh, uh, area, for example, uh, then, uh, you know, down the road, we might face a world with lower tariffs because of the escalation we see today. Okay. We've got to leave it there. Gabriel, thank you. It's just absolutely fantastic, Professor. Thank you so much for the Kiel Institute for the World Economy. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.